This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. Welcome to the Oaks and Oaths podcast, where modern man follows his ancestral path up out of ruin and ever higher toward the unconquered sun. My name is Ben. Think back to before you were a pagan or a heathen. What connotation did those words have in your in your mind, in your consciousness? For a lot of people, when they think of heathen, they think of a barbarian, an uncivilized person who lives by no moral code other than his own self-interest. When you think of pagan, you might think of, you know, someone who dances naked around a fire. And yes, some pagans do. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think people tend to see, when I say people, I mean those who are not on this path, they tend to see our faith as something primitive and something uncivilized, maybe even something amoral or, in the case of some, even immoral. Now, while that is true to an extent, we do believe in an ancient faith that is primitive in some ways and naturalistic in some ways and animistic in some ways. That doesn't mean that we are an immoral people or an unethical people. In fact, if you look back at the cultures of our ancestors, especially of the Vikings, you'll find a society far more moral um, and supportive of the folks within it than you would find in the medieval Christian societies that would eventually conquer our ancestors. And so today, I want to talk to you about a path of practical values. Unlike a Ten Commandments that you're supposed to follow as though it's divine law, these values build and add on to each other, one after another, to ensure that the pagan or heathen man, or even woman, who I know there are women that listen to this podcast as well, um, are in these values, I believe, actually, though geared toward men, are universally applicable to anybody. Um, they can help you live a life of growth, significance, and meaning in the one true life that we have on earth. And that's this life. Um, you know, I think sometimes there's a saying that goes around Christianity that, that I think is wise. It says, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And I feel like sometimes we can get into a place where we know the lore very well. We know, you know, the Havamal, we might even have it memorized. Um, we might have a lot of knowledge about things, but if we never apply that knowledge practically to our journey in life. What's the point of it? You know, I mean, it's like knowing everything about a car. Let's say that you have a 1968 GTO Judge, one of my favorite American vehicles. And you know all the stats. You know everything about the engine. You know everything about the chassis. You know everything about, you know, the RPMs um, and, you know, how, how many cubic inches the engine is and how fast it can do zero to 60 and a quarter mile. But you've never driven it. You've never actually walked inside that car and felt the power 
of that mode of transportation. Feel faith can be the same way. There's a lot of people that know a lot about it, but don't really do much with it. And my goal is to not be those kind of pagans, those kind of heathens. My goal is to help us all live a life of meaning and transcendence on our time on earth. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. Are you a man of faith? Do you believe in something higher than yourself? Some sense of transcendent narrative and meaning in your life beyond what your eyes can see? Prior to 2020, I think many men would have answered that question with, yeah, I think so, maybe. But after such a tumultuous year, more and more men, and women as well, have begun a sincere quest to root themselves to something deeper and connect themselves to something higher, if only to maintain a sense of inner stability through the chaos. But this presents a problem. Faith is a very personal matter. For a faith to provide stability, it has to have a reasonable shot at being true. In order for a faith to be true, it has to be true for both of us, doesn't it? So then, don't I have to convince you to see my faith my way? And don't you have to do the same? Discussions like that, as I'm sure we all know, have predictable personal and historical outcomes. Whether it's a family member, friend, or stranger shouting in your face, or a full-on invasion, it seems that for all the stability faith grants to us internally, collectively it only creates more struggle. But that was then, and this is now. And today, in 2021, I am confident in my belief that men and women of faith need to set aside their differences and often very valid historical grudges and come together in the face of a third thing, an anti-spirit, that is flooding across the globe. It would take too long for me to explain what that thing is, but suffice it to say that other men have sensed it too, and in the past year that sense has driven more and more men into the arms of faith. Perhaps unexpectedly, though, one of men's more popular faiths over the past few years has become Norse and Germanic paganism, the worldview shared by Proto-European tribes before Christian and Roman conquerors moved north into the region. It's a faith and a worldview that roots men to themselves, to the land, and to the cosmic cycles around and within them. I understand the appeal. And one of the foremost voices of this transition is a man named Ben, who runs the popular podcast and Instagram account Oaks and Oaths. He grew up as a Christian, and after finding the faith and faithful around him lacking, he made his own transition to paganism. And of all the voices I've found, his speaks among the most clearly about the worldview and his designs communicate with vividness and light. I reached out to Ben several weeks ago in the spirit of all I just said. Many pagans have problems with Christians, and in some sense the feeling is mutual. But frankly, as far as I'm concerned, ain't nobody got time for that no more. With the acceleration of recent political events, it's more vital than ever that men learn to come together. We're well past saving souls. It's time to save lives and nations. So I reached out to Ben in the hopes that a Christian and pagan man can come together, discover what unites us, and begin weaving a bridge across the great chasm we all face. I think that we succeeded. Over our chat, we discussed self-actualization, aesthetics, and masculinity, the reasons to reject consumerism, the pagan notion of frith and how it plays into the larger functional worldview of paganism, how hierarchy gives men a goal to strive for, a ladder to climb, and something to aspire towards, and how a trip to Peru and an experience with psychedelics led Ben to discover paganism in the first place. Due to time constraints, this is a shorter conversation than most of my podcasts have been lately, but we both think it's just the first conversation of many. 
So it gives me great pleasure to introduce the next guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the host of Oaks and Oaths, Ben Howes. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's it's an honor to be here. I love your content. Uh, as a designer, I love the aesthetic of your content. And I think you're doing a lot of cool stuff with your interviews and with your vision. So thank you so much for having a dirty heathen like me on. <laughs> I love it. That's the that's the whole point is we've got this sort of refined Western classical kind of vibe and we've got the heathen vibe and we're just going to hang out and have a have a glass of wine, have a glass of mead and and we'll chop it up. <laughs> Love it, man. Maybe we can both share a steak. That's something we can both agree on. Oh, that's right. Um, steak is the universal. As long as it's rare to medium rare, I'm good. So. Oh yeah, like you know, we're still civilized men. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure there are awesome. some raw, some raw steak guys that are listening to this. Like I'm, I'm turning off this podcast. This is unacceptable. <laughs> exactly. That's we're just like gatekeeping from the beginning there with uh, with steak talk. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just uh, just killing it right out of the gate. <laughs> oh man, that's that's funny. <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual because I really love your oaks and oaths aesthetic. I think you've done just an amazing job. And I know that you're a graphic designer by trade and I used to work in marketing in a previous life. And so I have a lot of respect for the amount of skill and effort that goes into producing uh, content like yours. The refinement is is just exceptional and you do a great job with combining these these uh, quote posts with the rune posts and now I've I've seen you've been working on those um, archetype posts and it all just flows so well together so your skill really really shines through. Oh, well, thank you. I I think that you know when you look back at the foundation of art before it was bastardized by commerce to some degree art was transcended in nature. I mean, you come from a Christian tradition so just think about orthodox icons to like the Sistine Chapel and you think about like Islamic art or Hindu art, um, even back to cave paintings, petroglyphs, art was always meant to accompany some sort of um, higher thought um, mm -hmm. to bring about and to illustrate some higher understanding um, and disseminate it to people that, that might not be as in touch with that realm as, as maybe say some, someone who hold the, held the brush in the cave was. And um, so I always, I enjoy my job. Uh, I work for myself. I have my own business. I, I love doing commercial art, but I get a lot more fulfillment and enjoyment out of doing art that conveys a message that I want to bring into the world. Because when you do art or audio or anything creative, it's really a form of magic. It's, it's taking your vision and manifesting in the world and uh, hopefully engendering some sort of change. And uh, so, yeah, it's an honor to be able to do what I do. And you reach a lot of people with it. And I think that really shows through when a content creator today really makes a lot of effort to have their, I guess, content communicate something higher than just their opinions or their thoughts. They're trying to embody a set of values. And I think that's so central to the whole aesthetics discussion that's being had today is you have to communicate with more than words, the whole show versus tell, like, don't tell me what you're about. Mm -hmm. Show me what you're about in terms of your choices in terms of how you choose to carry yourself and in terms of how you choose to be in the world. And that I think a lot of people, a lot of men are really resonating with that more than just talking heads on television or the internet. Oh, that's a great point. I think too, that there is this like stereotype in our culture that men are these like rudimentary primal beasts that need their wife to get them a beer from the fridge. And um, that that's such a heartbreaking uh, mockery of what masculinity could be. I think that masculinity at its at its highest potential is transcendent and it it does 
enrich itself, feed itself off of the art. I mean, I was, my wife and I went, just went down to Sarasota, Florida, and there is um, the Ringling Estate, which is the guy who started the Barnum & Bailey Circus. He he left his palatial um, Venetian-style estate on the bay, and he also built an art museum for the state of Florida. Mm. And we were walking in there, and we saw like Rembrandts and we saw, you know, like Italianate, like, like early medieval, early Renaissance paintings all the way through, um, you know, more impressionist stuff. And, and, and there was these, like these big rooms with like gilded, uh, columns and, and, and articulately painted ceilings. And there was a sculpture garden outside. And that spoke to me as a man, just as much as going into the gym and, and like hitting a PR and bench or deadlift, because, it built that muscle of my spirit. And I was like, this is what we are capable of. And the culture that we live in expects so little of us because they don't want us to be what we can potentially be because that threatens their status quo. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that men who, who are into aesthetics, whether it's the aesthetics of the body, of art, of writing, of communication, that man, I think, ascends to a higher place uh, spiritually over the course of time than a man who just satisfies himself drinking beer, watching football and, um, you know, checking out girls at Hooters or whatever. So, oh, I completely agree. I, and I, I think not all men are necessarily wired that way, although I think they could be mm-hmm. and I think they should be in a, the way that I as you're articulating this, I feel like men have been punched in the third eye pretty consistently for the past, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, a, a couple hundred years to kind of beat this higher sight out of them. Because when men do see higher, they see through things. And that's the whole story of uh, that movie, They Live, where the guy, uh, mm. uh, I can't for, I can't remember the wrestler's name, but he puts on those glasses and it allows him to see, you know, that the he lives in an occupied world, essentially. Are you familiar with this movie? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's very memeable these days. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it's not a coincidence. I'm sure that they picked a strong fit kind of wrestler guy who is otherwise mm. kind of blinded. And when he gets the opportunity to see things change very quickly, man, that's, that's a good point. I, I think you're right. And, and, you know, I, I don't know if it's a malicious attempt to, to do this to men maybe in part it is. I just think that a man who truly is self-actualized does not need to buy products to, um, you know, to prove his worth. He doesn't need that sports car to, uh, to, to win over his secretary because he's happy in his marriage. He doesn't need to have a flash like Rolexes or big estates because he's contented in his inner life. And that kind of man is a danger to essentially the whole system around us because he doesn't need that system in order to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, he is spiritually facing is the term that I've been hearing lately, which is so important to have that attitude. I love this term because when you hear, when I hear the term, oh, he's a spiritual guy or he's a religious guy, I don't particularly like either of those terms because they have connotations now. They're kind of limiting. But when you say someone is spiritually facing, that's a very inspiring way to look at Like, no, this is the direction that I'm looking, but it's not everything that I am. And there's almost like this like Roman God Janus approach to that, because I think to be truly spiritually facing, one must look inward um, at his own spirit, but one must also look outward to the, the natural world and, and synthesize both those things together to be able to get a firm understanding of, of the cosmos and his place in it. I like that, too. Mm-hmm. Well, we're sort of transitioning to sub- some of the subjects that I wanted to, to talk about with you, which is, you know, my initial impulse to reach out 
of course, was that I enjoyed what you were producing in terms of your podcast and also your Instagram account, but also because I, oh, thank you. Also, because I think it's time for men of different faiths to come together, men of different faiths who are spiritually facing to come together and begin to have a dialogue about the things that we share in common that transcend our differences because I'm Christian and I know that you're pagan and there are other men of different faiths who are listening and all the faiths of the world up until this point, for the most part, have a lot of beef with each other. And the way that I see it is uh, there's some third thing that's on the planet that's coming for all of us. And unless we figure out as men of different faiths, how to communicate and work together and allow men to have their faiths and to respect each other in our face, then we're not going to get anywhere. That's the true divide and conquer. So I wanted to reach out to start having that dialogue with you and then talk about the many other things that we share in common, but let's start on, let's start on faith. If you want to share a bit about, uh, about your background and how you found your way to uh, heathenry, which is not a term that I had heard before, but you, you, you describe <laughs> it very compellingly. So I'm curious if you wanted to share some of your story with the men who are listening. Uh, absolutely, man. That's, that's, a. Uh... It's a good story. So I was born um, in the late 80s, right before the fall of the the uh, Berlin Wall. <laughs> and uh, I was, I'm 32 now, and I was raised by my parents who, very well-meaning people, very good people, but they were very, um, I guess you could say, for lack of a better word, afraid of the world around them. I my critique of Christianity has often been that it is a world denying faith. Um, and my, I was raised in a culture that was definitely world denying to the sense that if it wasn't Christian, it wasn't good. Like you could listen to, um, you know, like oh, Metallica, don't, don't listen to Metallica, listen to the Christian alternative to Metallica, listen to mercy me, or, you know, I mean, <laughs> something like that, you know, it's like this idea that the world is bad out to get you and we must be contained in this, in this bubble, distrustful of people who don't share our same exact values and beliefs. And um, there was also this fear that the apocalypse was about to come any day now. So it was kind of a fundamentalist apocalyptic strain of Christianity. I'm not going to say it was a cult because it wasn't a cult, but Mm -hmm. um, it had that kind of cult-like mentality and behavior behind it at times. Um, And I grew up in the country in rural Ohio, and uh, so when I was a kid, I was actually homeschooled because um, that was kind of what you did when you're in part of a part of that whole society that I was raised in. And um, I just spent a lot of time out in nature. I remember we had about 60 acres of woods behind our house. And I'd go back there and uh, just like I, I was kind of a lonely kid because, you know, you, you can't trust people in the world. I wasn't allowed to do Boy Scouts, for example, or even sports. Cause even in my small conservative farm town, there was the fear that maybe the coaches were sexual predators or <laughs> something like that, you know? So I lived a very insular and lonely life and it's easy for someone who goes to that to look back on that and hate it. But I've come to realize that that experience and working through it has made me the man that I am today. So I'm grateful for that experience. And when I was in nature, I would just kind of contemplate what I heard at church and then what I felt around me, I never felt the presence of God in the church that I was in. Um, it was a church of Christ, very, very vanilla, very boring uh, as a kid. And it was also the only place that I was ever bullied in my life was, was a church. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I'd go out to nature and I would have these like incredible experiences where I would, would just kind of cry out to God and say, what, what's real? Like, why do you send people to hell? Like, like, why am I going to hell for, for just being born? Like all these different kinds of things that, that I was taught. And as time went on, I became a teenager, got into rock music and I was in a band. Um, and I just rebelled against my, my family, which I'm not, I'm not really proud of that now because it caused a lot of pain in my life. And that was my decision. And going into college, I, I was still kind of tangentially a Christian for a long time, but I just never really bought into it wholeheartedly. And so moving ahead several years, I get married, um, get my degree, get married. I am, and I'm actually working at a church. Um, and I, I, it was a Southern Baptist church of one of the largest ones in, in central Ohio. And I would just kind of be dismayed because for me, I've always, my, my dad to his credit has been incredibly faithful to my mom and he, he, you know, like has modeled that kind of relationship so well, but I would see when the church I was working at was in an affluent area, there would be all of these people coming in um, for marriage counseling and divorces happening. And I would hear all these scandals of a pastor who slept with his secretary or embezzled money at these other Southern Baptist churches, like pretty regularly. And it caused me to become really disillusioned. I'm like, these people are claiming that they have, you know, the monopoly on truth spiritually. And their lives seem just as, as broken as, as anyone else's life, if not even more so in some cases, because they spiritualize, um, you know, their problems instead of sometimes dealing with them head on. And so it all came to a head for me when I was in Peru. I went to Peru on a missions trip to Yaquin, which is up in the Andes Mountains. And I was up there and they had an absolutely beautiful culture. It was a synthesis of, of uh, Catholicism, which had been, you know, the the so the Spanish had introduced that and, and essentially forced them to convert 500 years ago. But they also held on to a lot of their pagan beliefs from prior to Catholicism. And it showed up in superstition, old wives' tales, even in their art they did, the, 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 the rugs that they would weave. And so I, I was there and I, we were just trying so hard to tell these people that paganism isn't the right way. Catholicism isn't the right way. The right way for them to interact with Jesus is Southern Baptist theology. And that had absolutely zero resonance, I think, to people up there who are living on a mountain, who live there their entire lives, farm on the mountain, are in touch with that mountain. And we're trying to, you know, tell them about the four spiritual laws and have them listen to, you know, American worship music. So I grew very disillusioned at that trip. I felt like it's essentially like you have a, you have a small town with a vibrant economy and then a Walmart comes in and, and essentially says, hey, shop here, we have lower prices. And it drives out all the beauty and the, the local economic culture from their, their, their market. And so I, I left that trip, that and a couple of other factors too, just the hypocrisy that I saw caused me to really go into a dark place spiritually where I rejected um, the church. I, I quit my job and started my own business from there. And uh, this was in 2017. And I spent about a year just kind of depressed and atheistic and very upset by this faith that I put so much time in being what it was to me at least. And so then it all changed when I, I uh, started getting into psychedelics to try to find some sort of spiritual truth. Because as an artist, there needs to be something spiritual that fills your cup or else you're walking around with an empty cup. And I feel like that inspiration just starts to kind of evaporate over time. And so 
one day I took a couple tabs of acid and was hanging out in my neighborhood in Ohio at the time. And I looked in the sky and I saw the runes in gold in the sky. And in, in that, in that, you know, lysergic way that anybody who's ever tripped can understand. And I also saw some visions of like long ships made of light and this like ancient, like, like quasi Vedic, quasi uh, Norse, quasi almost Roman kind of culture. And I felt this voice inside of me say that this is where you come from. This is what you need to go back to. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know anything about Norse mythology because it was evil when I was a kid, of course. So mm. I read uh, Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, started understanding more about it, and have been walking on this path ever since. And uh, so, yeah, it was a, definitely a kind of a, a Saul on the road to Damascus kind of experience uh, in, in a psychedelic way. But that's how I've arrived where I'm at now. So help me understand a bit about, I don't know a, a ton about paganism and, and Norse mythology. I do have some runes that were forged by Tyler McCormick of Weird Core on Etsy. It's amazing mm, yeah. stuff. And I have, I have read a bit of Troy Wiseheart's Rise, Runes, and Ritual. Uh, mm. So I'm, I'm familiar with the symbolic language and how it functions as a symbolic language. I've also, other runes do, I've also studied uh, tarot cards. And tarot cards mm. are not a fortune-telling tool. They're, they're actually very much like the runes, like a symbolic language. Uh, and, and so I'm familiar with that kind of system. So help me understand a bit about what paganism means to you in practice, or as my friends say, operationalize it for me. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the runes first. So first of all, historical uh, disclaimer that there really is no direct translation from 900s, 800s to our current time in relation to the runes. The runes do have specific meanings. But over the last 400, 500 years, as they've been rediscovered by Western civilization, they've kind of been imbued with and extrapolated on their, their root meanings and, and given, I guess you could say, almost an environment around each rune. If you go through my uh, Instagram account, you'll, you'll kind of see the rune, what it means, and kind of my take on what that means in the life of a man. So in terms of divination, though, they were, the, the mythology says that Odin gave up one of his physical eyes in the well of Mimir, and in exchange, he was given a metaphysical eye. And with that eye, he was able to look in the branches beneath him and see the runes, and he was able to take them up and understand them and develop them and work them in his own life. I see them as almost like the tarot deck, as a, a source of, of divination, but also a framework that you can use to structure your life. I feel men work best when we have a form of structure that we can give to our life. I know I do. Spiritually, I think it's that way as well. That's how I approach the runes. We Again, we don't know for sure exactly how our ancestors did, but but they, they possibly did it the same way. Maybe they didn't. Regardless, over time, those runes have been given a specific meaning. And I think just hundreds of years of belief in that meaning has created that sort of current spiritually around them. In terms of the faith itself and how it practically works in my life. So it's interesting because I'm sure we'll get into this. Norse mythology is not my end-all be-all to my spiritual side, but it is pretty much the end-all be-all to my practical side and how I live my practical life, along with like Stoicism as well, is added into that as well. Heathenry and Norse paganism is, is an honor society and we believe that we are our deeds. So, so keeping our word is, is crucial. If you say you're going to do something at a certain time, 
do it. We believe that if you keep your word with yourself, then you'll keep your word with others. When that happens, you build what's called frith. And frith is essentially the bonds of peace and, and brotherhood amongst other people. So it's kind of funny because this dovetails in our conversation. I wouldn't look at someone's religion as a determiner of their honor. I would look at their actions. Like you were saying, it's it's not so much what we say. It's what we do that, that makes people trust us and, and want to become close to us. So there's that. There's a strong emphasis on self-reliance, on industriousness. Um, there's a strong reliance on uh, marital fidelity and building a family, on standing up for yourself, defending what you believe in. Uh, there's a strong belief in in building your community and being loyal to your community, being loyal to your brothers, and initiating the younger men into a manly way of living, a right way of thinking about about life. So, really, uh, I've heard it said that paganism is less of a religion and more of a worldview with a spiritual component. And uh, that's, that's essentially, hopefully answer your question with enough detail, but that's, that's how I walk it out in my life. That's really interesting. So this, this notion of frith, of yeah. essentially building a structure of integrity around yourself by following through on the things that you do. That's really interesting. Where did that come from? I love this idea, by the way. Yeah, well, so you got to think about the, the time period in which uh, this faith was practiced. You had a lot of small tribes and you're living in a very cold climate up in either, you know, Germania or Scandinavia or even England, um, those who followed the old gods. And so there had to be a sense of, of, of peace and, and mutual respect between different tribes if you wanted to, you, for example, stop your family from getting raided. I mean, the Vikings were known as raiders and they definitely raided, absolutely raided other cultures, but that didn't happen so much at home unless those tribes were at war. And Frith was essentially a way to help these tribes hold on to their own resources, not steal from another man's territory. And it, it was essentially lines in the sand that kept these different families, different tribes, different groups functioning together as a confederation of tribes within a larger area um, so that there was a sense of peace in that area. And, and they wouldn't, cause I mean, think about it. If you were, if you live in a cold climate and you lose, you know, a member of your family, especially a male member of your family, then, then that's going to be a lot harder to take care of the livestock to farm. A lot of our, these, my ancestors were actually farmers and not actually Vikings. Viking was a profession. Most of them are just herders and farmers. And so if you were to lose a member of your family like that, then mm -hmm. that could be, you know, doomed for your whole family. And so Frith is essentially this idea that, hey, we're in this together. We're facing the struggle. This is a hard time, but we together will collectively put aside our differences and work toward a common goal. And in their case, it was survival. And in oftentimes it was also their own honor. They would get into fights over honor. If, if, you were to, if I were to go to you and say, you're a dishonorable man, we would fight to the death because a man would fight for his honor above all else because that, that was essentially his right to rule over whatever kingdom he had or whatever tribe that he had. So I think that our nowadays is just kind of a 21st century adaptation of that kind of thinking. So it originates in the tribal, the tribal Viking and Norse days from hundreds of years ago is where that is where that concept originates from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a lot that you're saying in there. That's very moving for me, especially because, well, on one side you talk about, uh, how impactful it is losing a family member. Jared Diamond wrote a book called Guns, Germs, and Steel. And he also wrote a book called, I think it's called The World Before Yesterday, in which he talks about comparing the modern world that we live in to the tribal world of centuries past, millennia past. 
And he says, we're used to thinking about war today as being hugely devastating, but the wars between mm. tribes were actually far more devastating because if you had a small tribe of say a hundred people that went to war with another tribe of a hundred people, maybe 25 of the, of the people in that tribe would be fighting age men between the ages of say 16 and 40 or whatever age, pick your age range. Mm-hmm. If 50% of those men died or even 25% of those men died, you could absolutely devastate the tribe for generations versus today that if you lose an approx- a similar number of men, as enormous a tragedy as it would be, obviously, it, didn't, it doesn't impact nations in quite the same way. And so as you're talking about how important it was for tribes to have honor back then to protect the integrity of the tribe, because the loss of any single member, especially a fighting age male, was so significant to the survival of the tribe, that really resonates. And I think people today have absolutely lost touch with that reality. Yeah, I mean, there's, in my view, there's a big distinction between being a warrior and being a soldier. A warrior fights for himself. He fights for his vision, his people. He's also very spiritually aware too, and he's got wisdom that comes from that spiritual awareness, whereas a soldier is often just an extension of the power of another man's vision, an agent of the state. And that's not to disparage soldiers or operators at all. That's a noble and honorable profession. But I think fundamentally there's a difference. And back in that culture, you're right. You just had a small band of people. So far better to have warriors that were invested in that community than, say, mercenaries that were there for hire to fight. Mm, that's a great distinction because back in the tribal days, there was there was no such thing as a standing army. If you were a man and you could pick up a plow, you could pick up a spear. And so you are a warrior in the same way that you're a farmer. You don't really, until the dawn of civilization, as we understand it today with agriculture, begin to see the formation of standing armies where fighting becomes a profession rather than mm-hmm. a necessity or a calling. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Everyone, everyone would join the shield wall. Um, and when you think about, too, uh, in terms of their view of the afterlife, so the highest honor uh, you could achieve would be to either go to uh, Valhol or Folkvanger. And Odin would, would, well, first of all, Freya would select her chosen dead and take them to Folkvanger. And then Odin would choose his selected dead and take them to Valhalla, where they would spend eternity fighting every day, going to sleep, dying in battle, then waking up and fighting again. So there's this idea that the, the ultimate honor that one could get in the afterlife is and the only way that you could achieve that is to die honorably in battle. And that meant that I think a lot of these folks in this time were absolutely unafraid and they lost their fear of death. And I believe that that's a parallel to nowadays and the path of the warrior today is to lose one's fear of death so that one can face whatever happens um, in front of him. And he has the courage to do what he has to do to make a difference in the short amount of time that we all have on this planet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the other aspect of what you're talking about that's so important, that's so lacking from our world, but that a lot of men of all ages are becoming very hungry for, which is a sense of honor, of nobility, of courage, of dying in battle or dying in service of something, some higher ideal than yourself and something even higher perhaps than family, as noble as it would be to die for one's family, there's also a larger sense of family where, which can extend to your culture or your traditions or even higher ideals such as beauty and liberty and freedom to the extent that, you know, I think that we're talking about those words because they have so many other definitions around them. And I don't think that our society as we have it today, and I agree with you, I think also Christianity uh, as it's practiced in, in many, many places offers men that 
And you, I think you very rightfully point out the enormous amounts of hypocrisy, of spiritual emptiness, of performativeness of so many of these communities. And it's very natural that people would become disillusioned with it and be skeptical even, as well as the other assault from the other side within popular culture, which is, did Jesus exist? Is it just this cobbled together mythology, you know, and all the, all the ridicule that takes place, you know, from the side of the new atheists, I guess you might say as well. And so it, it makes sense that men go looking for something outside of this culture because they go looking for things that have been removed from the culture. They go looking for the essence and the, and the flavor of life that what we currently experience in the United States today and in many places in Europe just isn't provided. Yeah, definitely. And I think the problem that modern Christianity has and a lot of actually like even paganism has this issue is that it becomes less about the man's sacrificing himself to himself to become spiritually more advanced and to grow, but it becomes more about enacting some sort of temporary political or cultural win, right? Like I, I grew up in the church I grew up in, we were like, you know, like George Bush's election was essentially tied to America's existence. And, and, you know, I'm not going to show my hand politically here, but I'm just, I'm just saying this arbitrarily, but uh, in paganism, sometimes you see people that say that if we don't, you know, if you're not anti this, anti this, anti this, into this, then you're not a, then you're not a pagan. It's that's ridiculous because in both cases, the goal of a faith is to transcend ideas of politics and ideas of culture. Now, your faith may inform mm -hmm. the way that you politically operate in the political and cultural sphere, but there's a big difference between running for office and holding office and then complaining about online about people who do. And the man who is spiritually mature and awakened doesn't waste his time with that because he realizes that he can't change it. And I think that's something, honestly, that is, is central to a lot of faiths. One thing that Christianity and paganism, for example, have in, in common is this idea of we have the all-father Odin, Christians have God the Father. There's this like paternal father figure cosmologically in this like divine hierarchy that that helps us go from being a boy into the ways of men, almost like a mentor in our lives. And I feel like if you are a Christian and, and that's why you're in it, to essentially, as the Bible says, be imitators of Christ, to to reflect the light of your God and, and help others be able to find that same peace and growth and uh, ascension in their life, then I'm behind that person 100%. If your faith is just some sort of club to beat other people who don't feel don't think the same way that you do, then you and I are going to have a problem because you're because you're missing the point no matter what you say you believe in. Hi everyone. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Ben Howes of Oaks and Oaths. Just a quick reminder to head over to my brand new website, renofmen.com. That's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, -E like Renaissance of Men, but shorter, renofmen.com. And while there, don't forget to check out my campfire page with my coaching and community options, and also the library page with its ever-expanding list of masculine leaders, books, and communities. Also, thanks so much to those of you who have left the five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated. But I can see that some of you are slacking on that. So when you have a spare second, pop open the app and click the five-star button. And if you're feeling extra solar, leave a written review. Together, we can help get more men into the Renaissance. That's all for now. Let's get back to the conversation with Ben Howes from Oaks and Oaths. 
Oh, I completely agree. And you should embody your faith. You should live your faith. You should be an example of your faith and what the faith can do to the human spirit. And my journey to Christianity was a 20-year journey through all the faiths of the world. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I ever actually became a Hindu or became a Buddhist or anything like that, but I have traveled to many places around the world, as I know you have as well. And I've experienced all of these faiths on their own terms. For example, I went to the Kumbhala Festival in India, in, I think it was in 2019, 200 million people or something like that. It's a, it's a crazy amount. Attend this festival over the course of, I think it's five to eight weeks, something like that. And I went in, I'm going to go with February of 2019. and you know, I slept on the floor in a, uh, on the ground in a Hindu ashram tent. And I bathed in the Ganges river five, five times over five separate days and did everything I could to blend in, which is pretty near impossible being a six foot tall, white bald <laughs> guy with a red beard and tattoos, but you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's what I mean by experiencing this faith on its own terms. And then also a 10 day Vipassana meditation retreat. Also when I was in India and many things like that over the course of my life and my arrival ultimately to Christianity was a discovery of how this faith had so many different answers that I was looking for, but it came at the end of the journey of discovering personal integrity and inner structure and uh, living a just and good life. So I had internalized all of these things already through my journey as a man. And then the final answers I was seeking, I found in Christianity. So then when I came back into mm. the world, and then I looked at the way that most people uh, had been living their Christianity, I saw exactly what you're describing in a way, but in the inverse is Christianity doesn't give many people or men the ability or the knowledge for how to live their lives with integrity. Yeah. In fact, I would say that in many cases and in many churches, not necessarily speaking to the nature of a church in general, but perhaps the pastor or the community or the tradition or the politicization of the faith, that these things are absolutely missing, entirely missing from the faith. And it's a, it's a giant gaping hole and I can't do anything but look at that and, and say that somewhere along the road of history, a crime has been committed. And I don't know where, and I don't know when, I don't know who, who committed it. But when I look to, as you describe paganism and this notion of frith, which is, it's a brilliant word that describes something that's so important in the life of any man. Where is the frith in Christianity? Where are the churches teaching that same concept? I think they're coming. But for, th mm. for hundreds or perhaps thousands of years, I don't think that they've really existed in the ways that we all feel they need to. So it's funny, I, I worked at, at that church I mentioned earlier as a designer and also an environmental engineer. So I would like set up the stages and, and uh, create the quote unquote experiences because you can't call them church services anymore. Um, and it really has become the Jesus Christ laser light show. And, um, you know, it's. I, I have a, and the worship leader, you know, um, bless him. He was on stage and like, just like em emoting in a very feminine way mm -hmm. and dressing, dressing in a very feminine way. And that's, that's all well and good. And I think that that, that definitely, you know, gets some, some, some females in the seats, maybe gets their hearts, hearts pounding a bit, but a man goes into church and sees that. And, and there's just something uncomfortable about that. I, in defense of the church, I think about two eras of church history that I really I admire. First off is um, the Orthodox Church, which I would hold is the one true church because they were the ones that are closest to Jesus's uh, time on earth than anything else. And they've kind of maintained that tradition. But there's a strong 
strong masculine um, and even solar approach there. When you listen to their hymns, like they're just, they're just deep and, and, and moving and transcendent. I've actually worshiped at an Orthodox church when I was on my own spiritual path several times. And I was just moved by how the music integrated with the incense and integrated with the, the icons and the gold and, and the, and the reverence that they had for, for like their Eucharist there and their belief that, you know, behind the iconostasis that, that that is the temple that, that the presence of God dwells. And now you have a bunch of people in an auditorium, listen to some guy who may or may not have a degree, tell cheesy jokes and bad stories from his life and tells you not to fuck your girlfriend. You know, it's just so it, it, it's mm-hmm. the spiritual equivalent of wonder bread and, mm-hmm. and many, many that steak we talked about earlier in the program. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the Bible even says that, you know, like, you, you know, you, you can't survive on bread. You need to eat meat or something like that. I, it's been a while since I've been there. Right. All that, all that to say is that the other time in Christian history was during the reformation. You had Martin Luther and he would take all these German drinking songs and he would like, well, almighty fortress is our God is, was an old drinking song that he rewrote lyrics to. That was a, a strong masculine assertive faith. And, um, it's sad what it's devolved to over time, but I, I agree with you that there needs to be I think in Christianity these days, uh, a reverence for their God, the father, and also spiritual formation for men who, you know, don't want to show up wearing khakis and raise their hands in worship and, and, you know, talk about their feelings in a men's group, but who actually want to develop as strong masculine men who can make a difference and build friends with other men in their world. I fully agree. And there was a book about this. I recommend it all the time. It's by uh, Brett McKay, who runs the website, The Art of Manliness. And he Love is, that guy. Oh, he's amazing. And uh, I've that, actually, a side story, I actually designed something for him one time. Oh, did you really? Can you say what that was? Yep. Uh, it was just, uh, I think it was like a sticker or t-shirt design when they redid their website. So yeah, uh, this oh. like in 2020 or 19, whatever that was. Is it with the, the boxing dude, I mean, did you design that, that sort of a, uh, that seventies boxing dude kind of t-shirt? No, I, well, yeah, kind of. I, I took that and I added some, I just kind of modified it a little bit. It was a small project, but it was, it was definitely an honor working with him. Cause I, I love his content and I've loved it for a long time. Yeah. They've so. really, they've really grown and changed in some special ways. I, I wasn't a huge yep. fan when I first encountered their content a couple of years ago, I felt it was a little, I don't know, a little boy scout daddy in a way, yeah. you know, and that's kind of, you know, in this world of men, there are so many different men that are, that are taking different tacks to, to masculinity. You know, on one side you have the, yeah. you have the, the Jack Donovan's of the world and then the other side and, and you have the Ryan Micklers of the world and then you have the, mm-hmm. the art of manlinesses and they're all kind of mining this field of what it means to be a man and I'm doing it my way and you're doing it your way. And I think that's so fascinating overall to see the way that we're all finding what masculinity means in our own expression. So I've actually also worked for Jack Donovan. So Ryan Mickler, if you're listening, get at me, man. We got to complete the trifecta here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hat trick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so but yeah, the, I agree. So this, so this book um, that, that Brett McKay wrote, it's called Muscular Christianity. And he talks mm-hmm. in this book about the history of Christianity and how it became feminized over time and how in the early 20th century and late 19th century, there was a movement to make Christianity masculine again. And uh, the, the story behind it's too long to get into right now, but these pastors were kind of realizing that the church had become very feminine and they wanted to create a form of masculine worship for men. Because as you say, I don't have any experience with the Orthodox church, but I am aware that there are two different kinds of 
songs, uh, worship songs in Christianity. One of those kinds of songs are songs that are uh, to Jesus, which are very relational in nature, which women resonate with because women by and large are more relational. So these are the songs that you're describing in the church service yeah. was like, Jesus, I love you. Jesus come into my heart and stuff like that, yeah. which is not how men relate to each other, nor how men relate to worship. So men get very turned off by that. I've been very turned off by it. like, what is, I'm not saying that like, come on, yeah. you know, but then I mean, the, asking another dude to come into your heart. I mean, it's a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a way of expressing that same sentiment in a yeah. way in, 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 in a different kind of way. Cause I don't think the sentiment itself is bad, but when you say no. it in that way, it's like, um, yeah, no, I'm just not saying that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But then there's also, as, as you say, in the Greek Orthodox church, there are, which men prefer to sing are songs about Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus mm. is the redeemer, which is very kind of hierarchical in nature. And so this muscular yeah. Christianity movement, which dovetailed very much with like Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and those mm. kind of guys. Love him. Yeah. Amazing. But the pastors of this time would take boys out into the forest and they would worship in the forest. It's like, why do you have to have it be the Jesus laser light show? Can't you worship in the forest? Do you need this big production value? Or is it enough to have, you know, one guy with a guitar singing and everyone singing together? Imagine a community of men singing the equivalent of a sea shanty, but instead it's a hymn to Jesus out in the forest. How incredible would that be? Why does that not exist anymore? And so that's where I say like a crime has been committed, that men in their hearts are looking for something like that, but it's been taken from them in a way. I can't draw any other conclusion than it's been taken from them. That's fascinating. I think you're right. And, and speaking of Brett McKay and Ryan Mickler, like they're both LDS and actually have a lot of respect for the LDS faith yeah. because it's, it has a lot of parallels with paganism. I, I don't want to talk about their theology on their behalf because I don't really know it as well as they would, but there's this belief that, you know, like once you die, you go on to like essentially beat a God over a planet or something like that, which even if that's metaphorically speaking, whatever, that's a really cool aspiration. It's like you're working towards something. You don't just get to hang out on like the heavenly cracker barrel and rock back and forth. You know, <laughs> you, you get to actually be a God over a planet, which is badass. And so, um, and they also have a strong approach to family. They have this beautiful sense of reverence about what they believe. And a lot of people that, that came into that faith were people from, you know, Scandinavia, especially in Utah and in Germany, people who had that pagan instinct in them. So, just kind of a sidebar, but I, I, I orthodoxy and the LDS church, uh, I, I, I think the LDS church can also be at times oppressive of people too. So I'm not, I'm not endorsing them necessarily, but I think that they are very interesting to me as, and uh, I think there's definitely a lot of men within that faith that are doing great things that are kind of championing a, a strong masculine faith. And I have, I have respect for that. I want to page Clawson Smith who uh, grew up in the LDS church and he was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure he would have something to say. I don't know anything about uh, the Mormon theology, but I do know that I can look at many uh, Mormon men that I know and, and to Ryan Mickler and Brett McKay, I would add Tanner Guzzi, um, mm, yes, who definitely. definitely embody these very strong, outward-facing, spiritual-facing, family-oriented, accomplished masculine values and say, yep. some of these men in this church are obviously doing something right. And so I, I, I take that as a really positive sign. And I think that goes to a bigger point, too, about the, the Mormon church, as well as the Orthodox church uh, and the Catholic church, I guess you could say, too, are very hierarchical in their structure. And we live in a society where I think that 
the prevailing sentiment is that instead of having a hierarchical structure, we should have this very wide structure where everybody has the same same voice, everyone's opinion matters the same. I think that that, not, not to be exclusive, like, you know, make an absolute statement, but I think that that tends to be a more feminine perspective on the world. And I think that that's a good thing because that, for, in, in that realm, because you know, like my wife always knows everything that's going on. Like she will, can, can be like talking about our house and how she wants to remodel it. She can be working on a, a grocery list for me. She can be talking about vacation plans 10 years from now. And I'm just like one thing at a time. Like that, that's all mm-hmm. that I can focus on. And I think that part of the disenfranchisement of men in this era is that we don't have that ladder that we can climb and not so much in a materialistic corporatistic way, but in a spiritual way, Mm -hmm. hierarchy gives us a goal. It gives us something to strive for. Men need to have boundaries in their thinking. They need to have boundaries in what they believe in, and they need to have something to aspire toward in order for them to fully become alive. And I feel like so many men feel like they can't do that these days. And there's a way to do it without, I think the, the negative aspect is when someone rejects that prevailing culture and becomes destructive and they become like, say like an incel or they blame all their, their problems on, you know, on, on the society or a certain group of people. But the answer really to combat this thinking is to work on yourself. It always starts with you. You always have to go inward and become the best man that you can possibly be. That's the only way to ascendance. You know, there's not going to be some group that's going to champion your cause. There's not going to be some product that you can buy to make you better. Only you can make yourself better by going inward. And that's why a spiritual formation or spiritual facing, you know, worldview in the heart of a man is so crucial for him on his journey. That as well as a community of men to practice in, you know, and, and hierarchy not only gives us something to aspire to, but I think it also helps men to orient themselves in a larger context. Like, I don't think every man is meant to be an alpha, so to speak. In fact, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a beta, even though that term is used as an insult. Now, if you're, if you're cutting yourself short of your potential, then I think that there's something worthy of some form of criticism there. But Mm -hmm. I think it's one, you know, we're, we're all very hard charging, hard driving men that are attempting to be, I guess, alpha for lack of a better word in our, in our own ways, but that doesn't necessarily apply to every man and the men that don't necessarily have that, which is fine because society structured the way it is for a reason they still need a hierarchy to fit into that helps orient their efforts in a unified direction. And when you flatten everything and you level everything and you say that everyone's equal and there's no hierarchy and that looking for a hierarchy is bad and that a hierarchy itself is evil, perhaps you rob men of the opportunity to achieve. And you also rob other men of the opportunity to belong. And I think I see, yes. I see both of those going on. And it's such a tragedy too, because so many men, they don't want to be leaders. They have no interest, but they want to belong to something and they want to be seen and they want to be appreciated and contribute, even if they don't want to be the guy driving the bus. That's a great point, Will. I, I would say that the whole alpha thing is ridiculous to me because <laughs> for, for, for example, you might be, you might get the most women in the world, have all the most money, whatever, think you're an alpha, but you go on the basketball court against LeBron James, your ass is going to get kicked. Like we're, we're all alphas. We're all good, I guess, at a specific things like, you know, like someone could be an alpha in the philosophy world or the writing world, the design world. And that's the beauty of having a, a group of men that, that you relate with is because you have different, like the Bible talks about, there's one body with many parts 
and all those parts function together to create the whole of the body. I think that same thinking goes in with any group of men. If you look in the military, for example, you have different MOSs for men that do different things. Like not everybody is going to be a, a parish, like a parajumper or a parachuper or a sniper or, you know, some guys have to work in the mess, in the mess hall. Some guys have to clean the latrines. Some guys have to work comms. You know, there's a, a group of men that do many roles to make that, that thing function. And I think we live in the society where men tend to look at what one man is doing and think I have to do everything he does or I'm a failure. And my thing is no, like admire what he does, be proud of him for what he does, celebrate his success, but find out what are the things that bring you fulfillment that help you ascend to that hierarchy in your own self as you go up like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, to self-actualization and then champion those things in your life that you are passionate about and that one you want to do and then surround yourself with other men that see that in you and want to help you get there. That's what Frith is all about too. I absolutely agree. Men need that. They, they desperately need that. And I, I don't think that there are enough roads that are kind of given to them to help them discover it. In fact, they're probably dissuaded from even finding it these days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when, you th- when you think about it, though, I mean, it all makes sense because a man who is truly free and, and to use a Buddhist term, detached from the material world does not need to buy life insurance, does not need to buy suits, does not need to, to promulgate the system that makes money for people that aren't him. He, he's free. He's truly free. Not even the fear of death is a motivator in his life. And men like that are men that change history. And my hope, and I'm sure it's your hope as well, is that we're building a generation of men like that that can really impact lasting change in this world. Oh, yeah. And that takes me back to something that you said earlier about uh, about politics, about how politics can be informed by your spiritual facing nature, but your politics shouldn't be your religion. If you're truly spiritually facing, if you really are aligned with whatever your faith is, with the deepest essence of what your faith is, to the extent that you've studied it and read about it and meditated on it and not taken some preacher or pastor or rabbi or imam or whatever, you know, their word for it. And you've deeply investigated the best thinkers that you can find about your own faith and united it with your own life to be truly aligned with the source of your life. You know, politics can flow downstream from that, but so does everything else. And yes. when you're really connected in that way, it's an incredible place of, of power. And when I say power, this, this word is a really complicated word. There's two faces of power. There's the form of power that we're used to thinking about, which is like, I am powerful over you or powerful over a situation. But there's this mm-hmm. other sense of power, which is like, if you plug in, if you plug in a, a piece of electronics, it gets powered. And that's what I mean. When you're truly spiritually mm-hmm. facing, you feel yeah. a sense of power. And I think that's and- what men are looking for from their faith. But we just have this limited conception of power, like, oh, I'll become powerful. You mean I'll just control these people? It's like, no, you'll feel alive. And that's not, that word even pales in comparison to the feeling. And I think that's what so many men are looking for and, and truly need. Man, that is so true. I, oh, man. This, I, honestly, I mean, I, I wish we could just talk all day because <laughs> I'm just getting pumped just by talking to you. And I hope Same. all your listeners are also getting something from this because I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the power, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 all right. Here's essentially my thoughts on, on, on religion at, at the end of the day. I feel that every man must be his own priest before the God, his God or his gods so that he can anoint himself to become his own king over his life. And 
it goes back to the saying that respect is either earned or demanded. And we live in a world where a lot of people want to demand respect because of their labels that they attach to their name or their lifestyle or their money or whatever it is that, or their political politics, whatever. But that's just such a fake and empty, meaningless, worthless kind of, of worth or, or um, power. True respect comes from someone who has gone on the hero's journey in mm. his own life, who has pulled the sword from the stone, who has gone through the dark night of the soul, walked through the valley of the shadow of death, being led by his shepherd, by whatever he believes in, coming out the other side, and then receiving that anointing to become king and to be himself powered by the all-father, you know, the, the, the father in the sky, this, whatever you want to call it, this, this masculine force that allows all of us to go out into the world and make something of our lives and has allowed men to do that from the very dawn of time, from the time that we became men. And... I, I really believe that that is the end goal of the project. It, it's, it's to the Christian, it might be, this might be a distinction between our faith paths, but a lot of Christians will bow down to God. We as pagans, we strive to stand shoulder to shoulder with our gods because we believe that the gods themselves, except for Odin, Billy and Vey, the three primal gods, um, were also made from this, this, uh, this giant, this Jotnar named Ymir, and essentially our, our mythology tells us that all living things are descended from the decaying body of this giant, which when you think about the second law of thermodynamics makes sense. We're all a part of this cosmos and we're all, you know, descending from this decaying big bang moment of creation, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and so therefore the gods were just really a, a primal ancestor of us and their, their blood runs in our veins and their vision can be in our third eye. Like it's like, there's a synergy between there, but there's a long journey that a man must go on to realize that this is possible. Um, the Bible even talks about be ye imitators of Christ. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. To be an imitator of Christ in my eyes would mean that essentially the same power that rose Christ from the dead also lives within you as well. So I think there's a parallel there in, in your faith too. I think so. I, I do think that there's a difference between the conception of the All Father in paganism, from what I understand it to be in Christianity, because in in Christianity and also in Judaism, God is the creator of the universe and all of its laws and the ar very architecture of creation, and stands outside and beyond it, and is a thing beyond understanding and naming. In fact, probably the best way to understand the the, the true nature of the Judeo-Christian God is probably to read. Uh, to read the Tao by Lao Tzu. That's probably a really good mm. way. It's the thing, the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. It's odd to find mm. a similar concept in that tradition. So it stands outside of creation. And I think the way that, um, that I understand Christianity is that I obviously can never be the creator of the universe. And in fact, I can, I can tell you that um, I've studied uh, Kabbalah through the tarot. So the tarot is a way to study Kabbalah. That's mm. how I learned it anyway. And to perceive sure. in the, the Kabbalistic diagram called the tree of life, it describes mm -hmm. the architecture of creation. Like you can literally look and see it, if you study deep enough with inner sight, you can see how God himself created the universe and why it's structured the way that it is. And I got a very brief glimpse of that 
once in my life. And it was profound and shocking to be able to look at the architecture of creation and understand mm. that as a human being, I'm a created being and unable to ever attain that. And God is perfect and God is love. And, and uh, those are the, the things that we have to reconcile ourselves with to understand why a perfectly loving God would allow us there to be suffering, which is far beyond the scope of our conversation for right now. Um, for sure. <laughs> we're not going to get there today. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'll, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, yeah. So um, so when it comes to bowing down to God, it's not so much uh, bowing down in, in the sense of uh, a sense of powerlessness um, mm. in terms of weakness. It's a it's a gesture of ultimate respect to the father that has created all things and yeah. created all the things that created all the things. And so I think that there's an honoring that's probably a bit more of an expression of like honoring God, loving God, appreciating God for creating creation in myself. I will say, though, that to your point, that there is also a component of we have also been imbued as human beings with a spark of creative power, a fragment of the creative consciousness of God. Uh, a very small fragment, obviously, compared to the original source. So that I think that distinction gets lost. So there is some, there is truth in all of these traditions that treat that teach that you do have a spark of creative power, but also recognize where that spark originates from, which is something far beyond something that you can you yourself conceive of. I actually agree with that. Um, so maybe I should unpack what I was saying because because I think maybe it came out the wrong way. I don't believe that we can ascend to be whatever God is necessarily. Oh, I, for sure. So the, the Orthodox talk about theosis. It's this process of living a, a righteous life to essentially, they believe in a demarcation between the energy of God and the essence of God. So they believe that you, if you live a righteous life and, you know, like walk the path excellently, you become more and more filled with the energy of God. That never gives you the essence of God of what God is. It's almost like if you're a pale, pasty, you know, like Northern European uh, descended guy like me, and you stay out in the sun like I did this weekend too long, um, you be you become full of the essence of the sun. And to me, it was a pretty bad sunburn, but I didn't actually become the sun in mm -hmm. its physical sense. But I became more like it by absorbing its energy. And you're talking about the Tao. I, I think there's this like idea of you know the void in the Tao or uh, Brahman in, in Hinduism, where there is this like mind behind all minds. And I would argue that we are all a part of that thing, but we do not constitute what that is. And it is greater than us. And, and even, I mean, anyone who's had any experiences with psychedelics will realize that you might think, you know, everything, you got it all figured out, you know, you might be a advanced physicist or astrophysicist and got everything figured out. You take some, some acid, eat some shrooms, and everything you thought you knew was completely turned on its head or do DMT. So there are just things that our minds can never comprehend. And um, But I do believe at the same time that we can align ourselves like a cup to receive water from the ocean to fill our cup instead of just like putting it under like this like rusty old pipe and hoping that it fills up with whatever is piped in from the ocean via, um, you know, kind of whatever someone else tells us to believe over time. So hopefully that makes sense. That That's that's kind of where my, my true thinking behind that is. Oh, it makes perfect sense because I think what's missing in Christianity and in, in many religions and many, I guess I would say, popularized religions, like once you start begin digging to the heart of whatever faith you're in past the surface level of what you're being told by your local religious leader, once you begin digging past it for yourself, you begin discovering a lot of these truths and to really have an experience like i said of power not power over but power within oneself 
you begin discovering that where that power originates from and how you can use it to enrich yourself and enrich your life. And that's an experience that I think many men today are really thirsty for and hungry for, and they just don't find it anywhere. And I do think that's intentional Mm. because I think there are too many avenues that are used to siphon off men's energy, whether that be porn or food or television or sports. I mean, and these are intentionally designed to siphon off our energy. I think you could make an argument that they all started off as good or at least neutral forms of entertainment, but now it's very clear that they've become predatory. And so there are Mm. men that are feeling that and there are men, there are men that are surrendering to that. And, and I think we all know examples in our lives. And of course, in popular culture of men who have surrendered to that and, and attempted to become seemingly virtuous in their surrender, like, no, this is how I'm supposed to be. It's like, mm. and then there are other men that are reacting negatively to it and are able to suss out for themselves. Something's not right here. And, yeah. but I'm lacking something inside myself, some knowledge, some sense of power that can help me push back against it. And that's what to me, being spiritually facing means is you have found a source of power that comes from beyond this material world and you orient mm-hmm. yourself towards it. And that gives you strength to confront and conquer the material world, uh, not just in terms of success and business or in, in financial terms, which is a part of it as well, but, but moral terms, especially moral terms. Beautifully said. And I think also that ties into humility because the man who has that power and uses it for solely his own selfish reasons is eventually made a, a laughing stock. I think about mm-hmm. people who might have taken too many psychedelics and they, they start proclaiming, I am God and, and I have all the truth. And dude, you've, you've learned no lessons. Yeah. Um, I always try to think about that there has to be a humility that there's always more to learn. A wise man realizes that wisdom is not an end destination. It's not an A-B trajectory. It's a spiral. And you sit with one truth and you go through a season and that truth deepens and you continue to spiral upward or downward depending on the actions of your life. So yeah, I I definitely believe that that power can be attained, but it can also be cut off by a man who wields it in the wrong way. And so I think that's why it's very crucial that we have a sense of, um, always a sense of, of, of learning and observing. I always think about Odin who wanders around the nine realms, even though he is, you know, the all father and he's, but he's still looking for wisdom. He's always searching. He's, he's speaking with people. He's always learning more. And I feel like that's a wonderful archetype for what we as men should do our entire lives because the curious mind is always a mind that's growing, but the rigid mind is a mind that starts to stagnate over time and then kind of becomes uh, less useful as well. You said something that I've been kind of kicking around an ideal soccer ball I've been kicking around to myself. One of the interesting things that's going on right now between men's of men of faith, particularly uh, between Christians and pagans in their own way, is that Christianity has this linear view of history. There was the mm-hmm. moment of creation, uh, there was the fall, there was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then there will be sure. some end point of history, the second coming, and uh, and some form of ascension. And that's a very linear narrative. Meanwhile, of course, I read a lot of Jack Donovan stuff. I know we're both working on his new book, uh, Fire in the Dark, oh, which, which I'm really enjoying. And You all need to go buy that when it's available. It's uh, pretty revolutionary. A thousand percent. In fact, uh, it, there's a lot that it has to teach Christianity as well, even though he doesn't explicitly reference Christianity in the book. I think there's a lot that even Christian men can can and should be learning from the book. Certainly I am as well. 
Um, all, all men of all faiths can learn from that book. Yeah. Yes, that's true. That is very true. Um, as is usually the case with anything Jack Donovan writes. So, but con- contrast the linear worldview of Christianity with the cyclical worldview of pagan and tribal and indigenous religions. And I think that's really interesting that they're kind of attempting to find some uneasy kind of synthesis because you have people talking about things like the Kali Yuga and the fourth turning, which is, you know, these cyclical periods through history of death and rebirth, which is what we can see in the observable universe in the observable world anyway, around us, you know, the cycle of seasons and life and death and new generations, et cetera. So there is a cyclical aspect to humanity and to life, but there's also this sense that things are linear in that our lives are also linear. And so you mentioned the spiral. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so interesting that that's the combination of something linear and something cyclical is a spiral. We're always, yeah. you know, you return to the same points at either higher or lower position mm-hmm. based on your, based on your choices. And I think this is, this is, it's really difficult to synthesize these two things, like the wave particle duality of nature. Like how can a particle yeah. be all a wave and a wave of part? How do we put those <laughs> together? We can't, it's a paradox. And uh, when you see a paradox, you, uh, you feed them bread or else they'll start quacking at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. No, no. I, it's sometimes you just gotta be absurd because <laughs> oh, for sure. it keeps you humble. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I think you're right. I, I think so on my Instagram, I, I say to the gate of tear, who's my patron, God, God of honor up the solar mountain to the great mystery. Cause that's essentially my spiritual formation. Like, on the yep. ground level, the the outer walls of my spiritual kingdom is Norse paganism. That outer wall has a gate, and that's the Tyr Gate. Um, then there's the mount, the, the Temple Mount, and that's the Solar Mountain as it rises from the earth and ascends toward the sun. And then finally, there is a temple on top of that mountain, and inside that temple is a host to a great mystery that I will never be able to understand or comprehend, maybe in a thousand lifetimes. And uh, I'm okay with that because I, I accept whatever it is to be what it is. And I accept that my place is to be mindful of that and appreciative of that. And uh, with that, I actually have to wrap up because I have a hard stop here in about nine minutes and I want to make sure I can get the room cleaned up. But I would, man, I feel like there's so much more left unsaid mm-hmm. and I would, I'd love to come back on and do a, a part two of this at some point, if you'd like. I would actually really enjoy that because I feel like we could talk for a while longer, especially about travel, <laughs> because we've been following yeah. each other around the world during some of our travels. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I've been every, I've been to two of the five communist countries in the world, been to Peru. Yeah, man, like all a lot of places, not as much as my wife. She's more traveled than me, but uh, that's a great way to also grow as, as a man too, is just to put yourself in an uncomfortable and uncertain context and, uh, and synthesize that into who you are. So wait, what's the other communist country other than China? Uh, Cuba. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I was going to say like, have you been to North Korea? <laughs> no, that would be wild if I had been to North Korea, but yeah, I think the five remaining ones are Vietnam, Laos, China, Cuba, and North Korea. Okay. So I've seen North for what Korea. that's worth. I've seen North Korea from a distance. So I don't know if that counts. <laughs> well, you're a lot closer than I got to it. I was, uh, yeah, I was pretty close to it in China, uh, at one point, but, um, that was actually when all that like scary stuff was happening with them testing their nukes and their, or their missiles and everything. So thankfully, uh, that, that didn't pan out that, that way, but <laughs> you never know with those communists. So yeah, those, those rascally communists, <laughs> well, yep. I'll respect your, uh, I'll respect that you have to get going. Where can people go to learn more about you and what you do? 
Absolutely. So uh, two things for now. I'm also going to be working on a website and get a, a mailing list and uh, maybe even a merch uh, a line here, which part of me is like, is that cheesy? Like, I, I, I'm not in this for the money, but I do have some cool designs that <laughs> I want to make for the world. But um, you can find me on Instagram at O-A-K-S-A-N-D-O-A-T-H-S, Oaks and Oaths, uh, all one word. And you can also on Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever fine podcasts are sold, or in this case, given for free, uh, you can also listen to my podcast, which is the Oaks and Oaths podcast. And I talk about some of the similar things that we talked about here, mostly just um, general men's issues uh, through the lens of, of paganism and, and solarism as well. So yeah, if you like what you heard, uh, please check it out, get in hold of me and let me know what you think. And uh, we'll go from there. Well, thanks a lot for that. And I, I really hope that we made it to a bit more of a synthesis between Christians and pagans today. I feel like we did. Absolutely. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy earth be done, or thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever ever and, and ever. ever. Amen. Amen. Man, that's that, that applies across cultures and across faiths and across across time too so thank you for that uh, it does and it's you know I, I don't i don't think about yahweh or jesus but uh, that that prayer uh is, is a very powerful thing to say for sure so it really is thank you so much if, if anything that. that that can unite us together so it's it's been a real honor will thank you so much for having me on this podcast and i'm really excited about doing it again episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.